before I get into chapter 10, I just wanted to take a few minutes to review some of the things that Paul has been saying up to this point. If you guys remember, in chapter 8, Paul addressed the issue the Corinthians had about meat sacrificed to idols. Is it okay for us, for the Corinthian Christians, to eat meat that had been sacrificed to foreign gods? And Paul explained how it was neither right nor wrong. Yes, they are free to eat such meat because there was only one true God and that idols were nothing. However, if a person who is who ha with a weak conscience believed that the meat was defiled by the idol, Paul advised that the believer abstain from eating it. In chapter 9, he demonstrated how the principle of self-denial for the good of others ought to be applied. He did this by making the argument of why he ought to receive financial support and why he refused to be supported. He then explained that the underlying principle for all his behavior in those gray areas of life was to bring more people to Christ. So here now, as we begin chapter 10, Paul comes back around to the topic of personal freedoms by warning Christians not to use their freedoms as a license of immorality. And as you will see, soon see, his point is this. Christians are to do all things for the good of the other person. So by using a moment in Israel's history, Paul wants believers to be aware of these two things. Number one, the importance of exercising caution and self-control in the Christian life. And two, Christians must exercise their freedoms, or, their, or as others would call it, their liberties, responsibly and for God's glory. So before we read, we begin reading the first section of this chapter, let's ask the Lord to speak to us through His Word um, in prayer. Lord God, we glorify you, we praise you, we honor you for allowing us to be here this morning to hear from you. Lord, it is by your grace alone and your mercy that we're able to sit here in these chairs, open up your word and hear from you and read the words there and hear from you, Lord. Or we may be small in numbers, but you've said that we're two or three are gathered together. There you are, Lord. And we believe that. So now as we get into this chapter, Lord, speak to us clearly. May all the wor world's problems, all the issues that we're dealing with fade away. May we just silently or quietly hear from you, Lord, through your word and through this message. Speak powerfully, Lord, pour your spirit here in this room now, Lord. 
so that we may know what you have to say to each and every one of us. Thank you for this time. Praise you, we honor you. In Jesus' name, amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1. Now, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud, all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they all drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them since they were struck down in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us so that we will not desire evil things as they did. Don't become idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to party. Let us not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in a single day, 23,000 people died. Let us not test Christ as some of them did and were destroyed by snakes. And don't complain as some of them did and were killed by the destroyer. All these things happened to them as examples and they were written for our instruction on whom the ends of the ages have come. So whoever thinks he stands must be careful not to fall. No temptation has come upon you except what is common to humanity. But God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation, he will also provide a way out so that you may be able to bear it. One of the reasons I love history, learning about history so much, it's, I'm a history buff. I, you know, rather than to tell you that I, I'm a kind of a history nerd, I like to whether it's you know u.s history world history um, church history i enjoy learning about those you know those 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 things um, the reason i do is because you know history i think we can learn a lot humanity can learn a lot of lessons from the past unfortunately i've also learned that many times humanity has done a terrible job applying the lessons learned from, human, or learned from history. Someone once said, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. If we are to grow as Christians, we need to learn to apply the lessons given to us in the stories that we have throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. And this is what Paul is doing here in the beginning of this chapter. In these first 13 verses, Paul uses numerous examples of the sins of the Israelites during their wilderness wanderings to illustrate how Christians are prone to make the same errors if self-discipline isn't exercised. He begins by describing four privileges that the Israelites received. And those four were guidance by God in the cloud, crossing the Red Sea, eating manna and quail in the desert, and being supernaturally provided for, for uh, provided water. And if you want to read about those stories, they're found in, in Exodus 13, 14, 16, and 17. He mentions these to show them 
the Corinthians, the similarities between the physical blessings God gave their ancestors and the spiritual blessings they've received as believers. Just as Israel had been delivered from, the Egypt, from Egyptian slavery by God, believers have been delivered from the bondage of sin by Jesus' death on the cross. Just as the Israelites' Red Sea baptism had identified them into Moses, or in Moses, believers have now identified themselves in Christ when they were baptized with water. And just as, well, just as Israel had eaten the manna God provided for them to survive in the wilderness, God has supplied Christians with the spiritual nourishment they need as well. And finally, just as God had provided water from a rock and who he says represents God likewise supplies the living water to quench the spiritual thirst of believers. What he wanted them to understand was that God has and will always provide this physical and spiritual nourishment of his people through Jesus Christ. However, he reminds them in verse 5 despite having, that despite having received these blessings and these privileges, it didn't guarantee that Israel would reach the promised land. When they were tested in the wilderness, they failed. And they failed miserably because of, because of their disobedience. All of them died in the desert except for two, Joshua and Caleb. And, and in some places it says a handful, but again, these were the two main leaders from that generation, from the generation of the Exodus that saw God do all these great things. Only two of the main leaders survived and were able to make it into the promised land. Verses 7 through 10 recall four ways in which the children of Israel had failed and suffered for their sins. Idolatry, immorality, testing the Lord, and grumbling. They committed these sins and weren't able to enter the, enter the promised land because of their desire for evil things. And again, these stories are also told in Exodus 32, Numbers 11, 14, 16, 21, and 25, if you want to go back and reference these, these stories. See, although they were saved from Egypt, they weren't privileged to claim the rich inheritance that God had in store for them. So Paul tells the, the, the Christians at Corinth in verses 6 through 11, to be cautious about reading, uh, repeating Israel's disobedient behavior. You see, not only were some of them getting too close to their association with idols, but were also making idols out of their, an idol out of their own knowledge and out of their own rights. Paul then ends this section of chapter 10 with a warning and a promise that Israel's history doesn't have to be repeated by them. He first warns them in verse 12 
that even those who think they stand securely should be careful. Like Paul in, in chapter 9, verse 27, lest they fall and be disqualified. For the Christians to resist the temptation to be selfish and self-focused, they must first understand how vulnerable they are to fall back into sinful behavior. If they don't understand that, if they don't see this, then a believer who thinks he stands will find it difficult to stay on guard against temptation, and it will lead them eventually to fall. Nevertheless, verses, um, all these verses, verses 1 through 12, all balance, are all balanced by the marvelous promise of verse 13. The circumstances that tempt us to sin aren't any different from those which God's people of every era, of every time in the past, have experienced and can therefore be resisted. If they were able to resist those same temptations that you're facing today, you can too. If they were able to do this with God's help and God's strength, you can too. You see, God's promises, God promises to always provide an escape hatch, allowing us to persevere without sinning in whatever difficult situation we find ourselves in. The Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 18, for since he himself, and we're talking, he's talking about Christ, the writer is talking about Christ, for since he himself has suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are tempted. Paul's history lesson here to the, to the Christians at Corinth weren't just meant for their benefit and for their uplifting and for their, you know, to build them up but for ours as well. As readers of this letter in the 21st century, it's meant to benefit us as well. Although you and I have been saved by Jesus' death on the cross, if we're not careful to exercise self-discipline, we're just as prone to make the same mistakes that the children of Israel made in the wilderness. If you're here this morning and you want to grow as a Christian, you want to grow in your relationship with the Lord, here are a few lessons that I, I took out from this passage because there are a lot of them here. But just a few lessons you can learn from Paul's historical illustration here. Lesson one, constantly remind yourself of the condition you were in before you were saved and what God has done to save you. Although God was leading and nourishing the people of Israel in the wilderness, they took what he was giving them. They took what he had done, everything that they had experienced there, the parting of the Red Sea, the pillar of fire at night, and the, the pillar of cloud during the day, and the manna, and uh, everything that they had, they had taken God for granted. And time after time, they disobeyed him. Psalm 106, 
13 through 16 tells us why. They soon forgot his works and would not wait for his counsel. They were seized with craving in the wilderness and tested God in the desert. He gave them what they asked for, but sent a wasting disease among them. In the camp, they were envious of Moses and of Aaron, the Lord's Holy One. If we are to learn from their mistakes, we must never forget all that he has done for us. And we must never forget where we were, that we were once in bondage, in the bondage of sin, in darkness, separated from the love of God. 1 Corinthians 6.11 tells us, And some of you used to be like this, but you were washed, you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So let me quickly remind you, in case you've forgotten or in case it slipped your mind, you are saved. And you're a child of God today because of Jesus Christ alone. Just as God delivered Israel because of his love, grace, and mercy, he has delivered you because of his love, his grace, and his mercy. That's why it's so important that you remind yourself of these things that you, and you do so by preaching the gospel to yourself. Sometimes we're so busy and we want to preach the gospel to others that we often forget to preach it to ourselves. And you have to do so regularly so that you won't forget what he's done for you. Lesson number two, be aware of your evil desires, your weaknesses, and your vulnerabilities. Israel failed in the wilderness, in the wilderness because they couldn't say no to their evil desires. And as a result, they turned to idolatry, immorality, the testing of the Lord, and of grumbling and of complaining. Sadly, we're told that, again, only two from that generation entered the promised land. Well, just like the Israelites, many Christians fall back into sin because they fail to recognize how weak and vulnerable they are to the desires of their flesh. Rather than depending on God when they're tempted or going through a trial, they test Him. They test Him when they begin to depend on their own strength and their own wisdom. Oh, I, I'm strong. I'm a strong enough Christian. I can do this. I'm smart enough. I know the Bible. I, I know what it says. I know the scriptures. I can handle this. I'm okay. Man, I've learned my lesson many, many times that I can't rely on my own strength. I need always, all the time, every single moment, I need to rely on the strength of our Lord. If you want to grow as a Christian, 
recognize those weak areas that the devil will use to attack you, to tempt you to sin. And then surrender it to God. Surrender it. Give it to the Lord. I'm weak in these areas. Let me just give these to you and just give me the strength. He knows what they are. He knows your heart and he knows what they are and and he will give you the strength you need to endure that trial or overcome that temptation. It says in Psalm 55, 22, cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never allow the righteous to be shaken. And then quoting from Psalm 95, the Hebrew, the writer of Hebrews wrote in chapter 3, Today, today if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers tested me and saw my works for 40 years. You can avoid the mistakes that, the, that Israel made in the wilderness by softening your heart to the Lord and leaning on his strength and his wisdom. Lesson number three. Always keep in mind that God will provide an alternative option for you. We often want to excuse our particular tempting circumstances as very unique. You know, it's, this is, I'm in a unique circumstance or, a, or it's a special exception. But God reminds us that our temptation is not unique. Many other men, many other men and women of God have faced the same or similar temptation and have found the strength in God to overcome that temptation. So know this. Be aware, understand this. God permits us to be tempted because he knows how much we can take. And he always provides a way of escape if we will trust him and take advantage of it. Again, the believer who thinks he can stand may fall. But the believer who flees will be able to stand. And let's um, move, move on here. I have a lot to cover here. So, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 14. So then, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. I'm speaking, I'm speaking as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I'm saying. The cup of blessing that we bless is not a sharing, is it not a sharing in the blood of Christ? The bread we break, is it not a sharing in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, since all of us share the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Do not those who eat the sacrifice, the sacrifices, Participate in the altar? What am I saying then? That food sacrificed to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No, 
but what I do, but I do say that that what they are, that they, what they are sacrifice. They sacrifice to demons, and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot share in the Lord's table and the table of demons. Or are we provoking the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Verses 14 through 22. Now return explicitly to the topic of idol meat in Corinth, with which chapter 8 began. Although food in and of itself is, a more, is morally neutral, Paul does make one absolute prohibition. Eating such meat in the context of explicitly pagan worship services is always wrong. And let me explain what I mean by that. When you eat meat, when these Corinthians were eating meat, purposely knowing that it was, you know, what, what they were doing was wrong. Eating it was or is idolatry. And to sit at a table, at, to sit at an idol's table could mean fellowship with demons. So what Paul is doing here is reinforce, reinforcing the necessity for a believer to separate themselves, to flee, to run away from sinful behavior. He then states in verse 15 that his readers ought to judge for themselves if he's right and if he's making sense. To cement his position, Paul offers two further analogies from the sacred meals of Christianity in verses 16 and 17 and Judaism in verse 18. Partaking in the elements of the Lord's Supper, supper, or what we call communion, the bread and the wine, involves a sharing, a participation. It's the Greek word koinonia. It's a fellowship with the risen, with the risen Lord. This sharing or, or participation in verses 15 and 16, includes both communion with fellow, with fellow believers and a partnership in Christ. For instance, the common loaf reminds the, the Corinthians of their unity in Christ, which should also separate them from, the false, from false religions, from those idols, temples. So too... In ancient Judaism, those who, are, who, who ate the sacrificial meat in the temple communed with Yahweh and received from him the temporary forgiveness associated with those animal sacrifices. Paul then informs the Corinthians how their idol feasts at those temples applies to them in verses 19 and 22, or 19 through 22. Now, in chapter 8, verse 4, Paul had already acknowledged that, that an idol is nothing in the world. It's nothing. Not, there is no such thing as, there's only one God. 
However, here he's speaking of a willful participation in idolatry, not in eating foods offered to idols. Participation in idolatrous rites is a violation of a believer's union with Christ and thus with the one body relationship they had with other believers. Therefore, the Lord's Supper and the table of demons are mutually exclusive. They're not, they're completely, totally different things and they have to be seen that way. The application is clear. A believer cannot partake of the Lord's food, the Old Testament sacrifice, the New Testament supper, and the devil's food, the idol's table, without exposing himself to the danger of provoking the Lord. Christian involvement in this kind of idolatry risk incurring God's severe judgment. He wanted them to remember of what happened in Exodus 32, when Israel provoked the Lord, the Lord to jealousy and how it resulted to, in, in a plague. His point is that believers don't have this kind of influence over God. And when God becomes jealous because his people are spiritually adulterous, he punishes them. So by saying, are we stronger than he, than he? Paul wants the strong Christian to understand that it's dangerous to play with sin, tempt God, and not be harmed. As followers of Christ, you and I may not be facing the same exact issues that Paul was writing to the Corinthians about here, but we do face the same moral issues that they were dealing with. If you want to avoid moral failure, if you want to stay, avoid certain sins in the world that we're living in today, I want to share with you how we can apply verses 14 through 22 practically. You can avoid moral failure by separating yourself from idolatry and sinful behavior. Again, idolatry is putting other things ahead of your relationship with God, putting other things above the Lord. In Corinth, idolatry was often associated with sexual immorality. So when Paul says to flee from idolatry, he means have nothing to do with it. Have nothing at all to do with idolatry. We may not have worship, uh, or we may not worship these small little statues as idols, or we may not worship in these temples that have all kinds of idols like the Corinthians did. But there are idols, there are idols out there that are around us today that can lead to sexual sin. Now for some, here, I'm going to give you a couple of examples. For some, movies can be an idol that can lead to sin if they are full of strong sexual scenes. In this kind of situation, again, a Christian must flee from it. Bars or clubs 
parties can also be an idol for some Christians because it can lead to lust and sexual immorality. I know, I've been to some of these, and I know how it's just flaunted out there. It's just there, you know, guys and girls, just available. And Christians, it's easy for a Christian who's coming out of that lifestyle, or coming out of that, and we're still weak in those areas, still vulnerable in those areas, how it can be easy for them to fall into to sin. If this is the case for you, then flee from it. You can avoid moral failure by knowing and understanding the importance of fellowship and of communion. Kent Hughes said this, one of the most elementary level, on the most elementary level, you do not have to go to church to be a Christian. You don't have to, you do not have to go home to be married either. But in both cases, if you do not, you will have a very poor relationship. Christian fellowship is important because it spiritually unites us with one another. Every time believers are gathered together, God's Spirit uses us to encourage, to uplift, to build each other up, to strengthen each other. And when we gather for communion, we're not only celebrating something that only we as believers can share with one another, but it's also connecting us to the Passover and with the Last Supper Jesus had with his disciples. If we want to avoid moral failure, take heed to the words found in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25. And let us watch out for one another to provoke love and good works, not neglecting to gather together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other, and all the more as you see the day approaching. You can avoid moral failure by refusing to compromise God's truth with what the world says is true. Before you make a decision that could shape the direction of your life, ask yourself these two questions. What does the Word of God have to say about this? And am I honoring God with what I'm about to do? How you answer those two questions should determine how you ought to proceed with that decision. Colossians chapter 2 verse 8 says, Be careful that none of, no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit based on human tradition, based on the elements of the world, rather than Christ. Brothers and sisters, church, I want you to avoid moral failure and, uh, to, and turn to the truth found in God's word, not in the world's wisdom. Believers who build their lives around God's eternal truths rather than the lies of this world 
will be, will be less likely to fall into temptation and will be less likely to sin against God. All right, so let's move on here and read this last section of chapter 10. First Corinthians chapter 10, verse 23. Everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible, but not everything builds up. No one is to seek his own good, but the good of the other person. Eat everything that is sold in the meat market without raising questions for the sake of conscience, since the earth is the Lord's and all that is in it. If any of the unbeliever, if any of the unbelievers invite you over and want to go and you want to go eat everything that is set before you without raising questions for the sake of conscience but if someone says to you this food is from sacrifice do not eat it out of consideration for the one who told you and for the sake of conscience i do not mean that you i do not mean your own conscience but the other person's for why is my freedom's judge why for why is my freedom judged by another person's conscience? If I partake with thanksgiving, why am I criticized because of something for which I gave thanks? So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do everything for the glory of God. Give no no offense to Jews or Greeks or the church of God. Just as I also try to please everyone in everything, not seeking my own benefit, but, but the benefit of many, so that they may be saved. Verse 1 in chapter 11 says, Imitate me as I also imitate Christ. This last section in chapter 10 concludes Paul's train of thought that he began in chapter 8, verse 1. And so... In case you haven't known, chapters 8, 9, and 10 are all basically lumped together. It's all one, it's all one big section, and he's, he's getting somewhere with it. And you'll see right now what he's, what he, where he's getting it. Again, he concludes his train of thought that he began in, in chapter 8 and summarizes the principle that believers must exercise their freedoms or their liberties responsibly and for God's glory. Verse 23 restates what he said in chapter 6, verse 12, almost verbatim, except here Paul substitutes, but not everything is beneficial at the end. In chapter 6, he was referring to the individual effects of exercising one's freedom. Here, he's speaking about how those freedoms affect others. In other words, one of the marks of maturity is when we balance our freedom with responsibility. Because if we don't, what is it? What does it become? It ceases to become freedom. It becomes anarchy, lawlessness. You see, the Corinthians didn't seek the help, the helpful things, or the things that would build up. Essentially, instead of wanting to uh, go forward with Jesus as much as they could, they wanted to know how much they can get away with, and still be believers and still be Christians. Now verse 24 is Paul's overriding principle of chapters 8, 9, and 10. And it comes down to this. 
the aim of every believer is to seek the good of a, the other person, especially if it can lead an unbeliever to salvation. So although unbelievers have, although believers have freedoms in Christ, they are not to use those freedoms to harm another believer. Verses 25 through 30 apply Paul's principles on two, uh, to two specific contexts of purchasing and consuming meat sold in the Corinthian marketplace and eating, in, eating it in, in a friend's home. In the case of, the, of marketplace food, Paul's command is absolutely clear. Feel free to buy it and eat it. Go ahead. Buy that meat, that meat that was sacrificed. It's, go ahead. It's no big deal. Food or drink are part of God's good creation and have been given to his people to be enjoyed. No food is unclean in itself. In the case of a friend's home, even that of an unbeliever not likely to have any problems about what is being eaten, Paul is only slightly less enthusiastic. His general affirmation is equally sweeping. Go, if you like, eat, and don't ask any questions. However, there may be present at the meal one who is one of the weaker brothers or sisters, who wants to avoid meat offered to idols and who has done some investigating. If this weaker Christian informs a stronger Christian that the meat indeed has been offered to idols, then the Christian, I mean, then the stronger one ought to avoid it, ought to just stay away from it. By eating it, that stronger Christian will cause the weaker believer to stumble and possibly sin. Verse 29 and 30, then resume Paul's primary line of thought again. He defends his freedom to partake the food for which he is grateful to God and not be paranoid about what's, what the unspoken thoughts of, of others present might be. What he's implying is if, there's, if there aren't any... Conscious, conscious objections, conscientious objections to what's being eaten, then the mature Christian should proceed without feeling guilty about it. The last three verses of chapter 10 restates the twin principles of freedom and restraint one last time, now in the context of God's glory. Everything a Christian does ought to be done for the glory of God. You see, God cannot be glorified if a believer misuses his freedom to cause others to stumble or to fall into sin. In the final verse of this chapter, Paul tells them that this is what he's been attempting to do around everyone he's, he's encountered or ha has encountered inside and outside the church. Paul's basic underlying motive for his actions is the salvation of as many as possible and is willing to relinquish his own rights for the spiritual benefit of others. His premise here is that God is glorified when Christians live selflessly and regularly seek what's in the best interest of others 
when believers act this way. They are practicing their freedoms responsibly and for God's glory. Paul concludes this section, as I said, in, uh, in verse 1 of chapter 11 by saying, imitate me as I also imitate Christ. He includes this so that Christian readers, his Christian readers, might imitate him carefully, at least to the extent he successfully models Christ-like behavior. Now quickly, the biggest lessons we can learn from this last section is is using our freedoms responsibly around fellow believers and around unbelievers. And here are three ways to do that. Use your freedoms responsibly inside and outside the church. Don't use your freedoms to cause another believer to fall into sin. For example, if you have no reservations or convictions about watching an R-rated movie, don't flaunt it by telling or or inviting others to see such movies, or who see such movies as sinful. Paul said said it back in chapter 8, verse 9, you must be careful so that that your freedom does not cause, cause others with a weaker conscience to stumble. Also, be careful about flaunting your freedoms around unbelievers so that they don't have a reason not to, so that they have a reason not to believe in Jesus Christ. For example, there are certain places that I know I have the freedom to be at, but I don't go because I don't want to be a misrepresentation of a Christian. I don't want others to see me, who know me as a Christian, as a pastor, and say, oh, that's how Christians are supposed to act. That's how Christians are. This is where they're supposed to be. This is what they're supposed to be doing that. I, I, I want to avoid all that want to do that therefore as a Christian use your freedoms responsibly around others use your freedoms responsibly so that God may be glorified in everything you do when Paul said in verse 31 whatever you do do everything for the glory of God he meant everything every single thing every decision every choice that you make in your life wherever you're at whatever you're doing it, it, it doesn't just apply to Sunday mornings here at church. It applies to every single day of the week at every single moment. Jesus said in Matthew 5:16, "Let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven." You see, the purpose of our lives isn't to see how much we can get away with and still be Christians. It is to glorify God. So if what you're doing isn't accomplishing that, then let me ask you, what reason are you doing it for? Why are you doing what you're doing if it's not glorifying God? And lastly, use your freedoms responsibly in order to win the lost. If you desire to be an effective witness of Jesus Christ, it's going to require a lot of self-discipline and self-surrender and self-sacrifice. This may mean giving up those freedoms that you currently enjoy. 
This is what Jesus meant when he said in Luke 9.23, If anyone wants to follow me, let him deny himself, take his, take his cross daily, and follow me. As Christians, we ought to have a deep desire, just like Paul, to bring people to Christ. And if we fail to be responsible with our conduct, it shows little regard for that. It just shows that we don't care about the lost, that we, it's, we don't care if they are going to burn for all eternity. There's, we just don't care about their eternal salvation. John Corson said this, like a weather vane that changes direction, depending upon which way the wind is blowing, the wise man will adjust his activities to the way the wind of the Spirit is moving. As you can see, these two overriding themes, the two overriding themes in this chapter are self-discipline and responsibility. As Christians, we must regularly exercise self-control over our thoughts and our actions in order, to, in order to avoid a prideful attitude of self-accomplishment. We need to constantly remember that without God, we are powerless. And our source, uh, and that He is our source of strength. If you want to overcome trials and temptation, temptations when they, when they come. And as Christians, we must use our freedoms cautiously and responsibly for the sake of others and for the glory of God. The way we use our freedoms, our freedom and relate to others indicates whether we are mature in Christ. Strong and weak Christians need to work to, together in love to edify one another and glorify Jesus Christ. And as I mentioned before, just as it was Paul's aim to reach the lost, it should be everyone's aim as well. That should be the reason you do what you do when you're around unbelievers. We need to be aware, we need to remember all these, we need to remember these things If you're listening and watching and you understand now, you realize the, Lord, the Lord's been speaking to you through this message that you are utterly lost. And that you're a sinner. He's revealed that to you. You can confess your sins and you can be forgiven and you can be saved. He, and He can make you and you can be born again. All you have to do is just surrender your heart to Him. To, to him. And if that's you, wherever you're at, just in the quietness of your heart, pray this simple prayer. Heavenly Father, forgive me. I know that I'm a sinner, that I have failed, and that I have fallen short of your glory. I believe Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins. I believe he is Lord. 
and there is no other. I accept your forgiveness. Fill me with your love, with your spirit, so that I may walk with you all the days of my life. Thank you for forgiving me. Thank you for sending your son to die for me. In Jesus' name, amen. If you prayed that, let us know. Let somebody know. But those of us that are here, just be aware of these things. Be, just be careful out there. There's a lot of stuff out there that's going to want to cause you. The, the devil is out there and he's going to want to trip you up. Don't allow that to happen. Don't, don't allow him and his schemes and his tricks and his lies to disqualify you. Understand your weaknesses and vulnerabilities. If you need prayer afterwards, let us know. We will be happy to pray for you and talk to you and share with you. So let's quickly end with the word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning and for your word that you've given us here. For your truth. Lord, forgive us for our trespasses. Forgive us for our sins. Wash us. Make us new, Lord. Give us the strength that we need when we are tempted. Thank you for all you've done. For all you've given us. Thank you for the stories here. May we learn from them. May we read them over and over and over again. And learn new things and not forget about them. Lord, keep everyone here safe as they go throughout the rest of the week, Lord. Bless them. Bless their families. May, be, they may, may they be the salt and light wherever they may be at. Bless this next time of fellowship, Lord. We love you. We praise you. We honor you with all our hearts. In Jesus' name.